In examining Jesus' earthly ministry, you'll discover that there are three categories of people based upon three reactions to Jesus. And you'll see that not only was this evident in Jesus' three-year teaching ministry, but it's been evident in really the 2,000 years of people responding to Jesus since. Three reactions, three categories. Every person falls into one of these three categories. First, you'll find that there are people that repent. Repentance is a reaction to the work of Jesus. Truth. I hear God's word. I'm moved within my soul to action. There's a changing of the mind that leads to a changing of the heart and a changing of the actions that there's repentant sinners who respond to the truth. But they'll also see, secondly, that of resistance. Now, these are sinners who hear the truth, but instead of repenting or responding, they resist. There's a hardening towards the truth. But then there's a third category, and that is rejection. Repentance, resistance, rejection. And we find that often that those people who resist the work of God are sinners, but those who reject the work of God, you'll find them to be religious, people who reject the truth. Mark has already presented us one group of people that fit the second category, those who were guilty of resisting the truth. And we find that in chapter 6, the disciples were guilty of just that, right? We're told that at the end of the storm, they're amazed at what had taken place, for they had not understood the loaves, Jesus' previous miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And the Mark tells us that they had not understood the feeding of the loaves because of the hardness of their heart. And as we discussed last week, the disciples had resisted the truth because they didn't want to change. They had a preconceived idea of who Jesus was. They had placed Jesus into a box, and Jesus was doing things that were kicking down doors, that were communicating something greater, that had far-reaching implications. And the disciples, they resisted. They hardened. But now in chapter 7, we're going to find another group of people who still harden their hearts in the same way that the disciples did, but for a different reason. The religious. The religious leaders rejected the truth because they didn't recognize a need for the truth. The disciples resisted, they hardened. Why? They didn't want to change. The religious resisted, they hardened, they rejected. Why? Because they didn't think they needed to change. It's a subtle distinction, but a big one. Verse 1, chapter 7. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes, they came together to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw that some of his disciples ate bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, we're told that they found fault. Now this is the second time we see an official delegation of religious leaders being sent from Jerusalem 
more than likely to the region of Galilee, to investigate the ministry of Jesus. The first occasion was in Mark chapter 3, and if you'll recall, the reaction to this first bit of investigation was twofold. First, they rejected Jesus' ministry. They heard Jesus speak. They watched his ministry from afar. They witnessed it presently. They were there in the house when Jesus healed the lame man. They rejected Jesus' ministry, but ultimately they could do nothing about it. Why? Well, the popularity of Jesus. The people rallied to Jesus, behind Jesus, and so they couldn't do anything. So what did they do? They tried to discredit his ministry through kind of a uh, negative advertisement campaign. If you'll recall, these religious leaders, they couldn't deny that Jesus was doing amazing things with supernatural power. The people saw it for themselves. So what did they do? They decided to explain Jesus' supernatural ability, claiming that he had the power from Satan. Now, since they have already made up their minds concerning Jesus, we understand that the second delegation, the purpose, the nature behind their investigation isn't an, an honest or an open like maybe we had missed it. But we see that because they had already reached a conclusion, they were spreading lies that why have they come? Why have the Pharisees and some of the scribes in this passage come from Jerusalem to Jesus? They hadn't come to respond. They had come to stir up controversy. That's interesting that Jesus' main opposition, it didn't come from the sinners. It didn't come from the activists. The biggest opposition to Jesus' ministry, and it really blows my mind, was the religious people. Like what you would consider to be the Christian coalition of the day. The religious right. The moralist. The Bible thumpers. The Jesus freaks. The people who were the most moral, righteous of the day. This was the group of people that gave Jesus the most problems, that gave Jesus uh, the most grief, of which Jesus responded with the strongest criticism. Jesus had harsh things, radical things, controversial things to say to religious people. And so our question, before we continue with this section of Scripture, is why did the religious oppose Jesus? Why did the Pharisees and the scribes, why did the religious leaders of Judaism have such a problem with Jesus? I think the answer is twofold. First, Jesus was doing something awesome. That was undeniable. Lives were being changed. Things were happening. But here's the deal. Things were being accomplished in a way that they didn't approve of. You see, it wasn't what Jesus was doing that kind of got the religious leaders' panties in a wad. What upset them was the fact that Jesus was doing it, was making such an impact in such a way that they didn't approve of. Ultimately, religious people, these people, they cared just as much about methodology as they did about results. But there's another reason 
that these religious leaders had such a problem with Jesus, why they opposed him. And that's the simple fact that they were jealous at the effectiveness of his ministry. These were the the old guard. These were the guys protecting the shield. These were the guys representing the old way, God's way, the righteous way. And Jesus is out there doing something. He's not placating to them. He's doing something that defied their methods. He's doing something that they weren't a part of. And he's getting a huge response. The people are gathering to Jesus. They're following Jesus. Jesus is getting the kind of reaction that they longed for. It's been said that envy is the consuming desire to have everyone as unsuccessful as you are. And it's true. They're looking at what Jesus is doing. They're looking at the crowds that are coming. They're looking at the lives changed. They're examining their own ministry. And they were envious. And so they opposed him. Now, 23 verses here, Mark sets aside that kind of are in a continuous train of thought. And really, there's a lot of ways that you can go about examining these 23 verses. Up to this point in our travels through Mark, we kind of have a method. We examine the scene of activity, then we address any relevant questions before we make some observations. When it comes to this section, we're going to kind of change our approach just for uh, simplicity's sake. We're going to divide our passage into four sections, four divisions. If you're a note taker, you might want to jot them down. We're going to look at the beef of the religious leaders. Then we're going to examine Jesus' response to their beef. Then we're going to look at Jesus' lesson to the multitude before looking at Jesus' application to his disciples. And you'll look as we go through this passage that these divisions are the most natural divisions of this section of scripture before we conclude with discussing a few of the traps of religious moralism. Let's start by examining the beef of the religious leaders. Mark is clear that this delegation, they came from Jerusalem and found fault with Jesus and his disciples because they ate bread with defiled, that is with unwashed hands. They found fault. Once again, of all the things that should shock you and perplex you, about this section of scripture, and really the reaction here of the religious leaders, is that with so much good happening in and through the ministry of Jesus, that these religious leaders were more interested in finding fault. They came, according to Mark, with the goal of finding fault. They were looking for things that they could oppose, things that they could pick on. They're there to stir up controversy. So much of Jesus' ministry is changing lives. I mean, where lame people are walking and blind people are seeing and dead people are being resuscitated. Where multitudes of people are being fed. Where the word of God is being proclaimed. Where a revival is taking place. And of all the things that they could do, they were more interested in finding fault. You know, this is an epidemic as well in today's church. And you find it often with moral religious people. I call it the sin of pettiness. Where people examine ministries and instead of looking and admiring and encouraging and exhorting the good, we instead become petty. That we look at something only to find fault. 
And you know, when the church takes this model, when we take this approach, when we allow small differences over ministry methodology or non-essential theology to produce big disagreements, three tragic results follow. You see, the truth is, is when we allow the sin of pettiness to take root within the church or a movement or within our own heart, it leads to ministry ineffectiveness. Now, I would say that today, if you examine the church, there's a lot of infighting. There's a lot of petty disagreements about methods of ministry, methods to reach the loss, methods to appeal to the next generation, methods to uh, appeal to culture. There are lots of things that are minor, non-essential, doctrinal disagreements that find themselves within the church. And what happens is that church leaders begin to attack other church leaders, that we begin to attack each other on petty, non-essential issues, and what happens? We lose sight of who's the real enemy. You see, Satan wants the church to fight against itself. Because if we do that, guess what? We lose sight of a very real, powerful enemy present in the world trying to lead people to hell. And here we are as a church, if we allow these things to happen, if we fight amongst ourselves over dumb things, non-essential things, the music's too loud in church. Really? That's like, I can't go there anymore. Like you're, as opposed to seeing that there's young people coming to church and people are praising God and the music is at a volume where I can sing and not hear myself because if I can hear myself, I'm less inclined to sing. Like really, that's, like that's a, a point of contention. It's petty. And we fight amongst ourselves. And what happens? Satan is out there leading people to hell. And we've lost sight of the enemy. You know, another result of the sin of pettiness is that it, in addition to lead, leading to ministry and effectiveness, it also distracts from the purpose of ministry. You know, sometimes I think one of the indirect byproducts when the church gets so focused on issues of, of methodology or non-essential doctrinal disagreements, you know, of the church that what ends up happening is we make such a big deal about this issue that we lose sight of the bigger issues. N not to go on a tangent, and I gotta be very careful what I say here, but the church today has made such an issue about alcohol. Not to say that there shouldn't be an honest conversation about alcohol in, in, a, in a godly man or a godly woman and what the kind of relationship should exist between the two. But we have made it such a big deal in the church. When I kind of take a step back and like, why are we spending so much time, energy, effort, and heart dealing with this? When you look at the real issues facing the church and it's marriage being attacked and it's homosexuals clergy, creationism. I mean, you look at some of the attacks of the church, it's attacking the bedrock. And what are we focused on? What we're drinking. To me, it's petty. 
and it distracts from the purpose of ministry. But the third reaction, the third result of the sin of pettiness is that it undermines ministry objectives. You know, I think the world looks at the church fighting the way that we do, disagreeing the way that we do, not being able to have any kind of unity, but the church being characterized more by our disagreements than our unity. And the world kind of looks at that and like, why would I want to be a part of that? Like, you major on minor things, and you minor on major things. And I look at that, and I'm like, why do I want to be a part of that? You see, the problem is, is that when we're simply going around looking for fault, the world looks at us, and, and what do they see? <laughs> they see that we look stupid, that we look silly, because we look petty. Now, what was the main issue here that the Pharisees found fault concerning? Well, we're told in verse 3, for the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, heaven forbid they bump into Gentiles, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many things, other things, which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? The beef. The Pharisees, the scribes, their beef with Jesus was this that Jesus' disciples weren't obeying the traditions of the elders concerning ritual washing, and Jesus didn't seem to care. Like, this was their problem. The disciples, and it wasn't like that they needed Perel because their hands, like, antibacterial soap. Like, it wasn't like their, their issue with basic hygiene, like, Jesus, your disciples, they should bathe every once in a while. That would be a good thing. No, it's all about ritual. It's all about the tradition of the elders. It all was religious. And the disciples weren't obeying. They weren't doing this. They saw it. They found fault with it. And they were also irritated that Jesus hadn't taken a stand, that Jesus hadn't rebuked the disciples, that Jesus hadn't made this a priority of ministry. Now to understand the, the whole idea behind what's taking place here is you need to understand the development of Jewish religious tradition. The Jews had been found disobedient. As a matter of fact, they had really been found stubborn they had rejected the law of God. They had refused to obey the law of God. God had sent multiple warning signals of like, listen, you guys need to get with the program. You, start need, you need to obey my word or else I'm going to punish. I'm going to judge. And they kept resisting. Their hearts had been hardened. And ultimately, God used the Babylonian empire to remove them from the land for 70 years. It was judgment. They had been disobedient to God's word, God's commands, and so they had been judged for it, removed from the land. Now, 70 years later, when the Jews were finally allowed to return back to the homeland, an entire new group of religious leaders rose to power in Judah. They were known as the scribes. 
Now, you'll find that the scribes are never an office mandated or commissioned by God in the Old Testament. You'll find actually very little mention of scribes at all. It was the priests. But when the people returned from their exile, which was punishment for disobedience, disobeying the law of God, when they returned, the scribes rose to power with this mandate. We never want to be judged like this again. We never want to be punished by God like this again. We've been allowed to return to the land. We've been given a second chance. And so what we need to do is we need to make sure as a people that we obey God. Now that seems noble. Like that seems rational. This group of religious leaders, the scribe, they rose to power. They want to make sure that the people obey God, that they don't commit the sin of past mistakes. Now, what ended up happening is that to make sure that no one transgressed the law, even by accident, the scribes began to write or expound upon the law of God, giving interpretation and more specifically application on how you can obey. Because let's be honest, you're reading through the law of God and though there are aspects that are very specific and particular, there are other aspects about the law where it's kind of vague, where God intentionally has made it vague, but the scribes want to make sure that we don't disobey the law of God even by accident. And so where God was vague, they began to interpret and apply that law to make sure no one messed up. And over time, more and more and more of their interpretation found itself as commonplace. Now on the surface, though this seemed like a worthwhile endeavor, over time, the application, the scribe's application of God's law had created a moral tradition that the law of God had never actually commissioned. Now, the extra scriptural moral code, it was referred to as the oral tradition or the tradition of the elders. So this is what we find here being mentioned. It's the tradition of the elders that Jesus wasn't obeying, that they had a beef with. Now, on a side note, you might want to jot down that the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders, they would, they would later be compiled and be contained in volumes like the Torah, the Midrash, and the Mishnah. Now, by the first century, the Jews believed and had been taught, it was held as a position that obeying the oral law was just as important as obeying the written law. They had elevated the tradition of the elders to the same importance as the Word of God. Now, an example, as we've looked at in the past, would be the Sabbath. Another example would be fasting. But in context to our passage, what's the issue? The issue is ritual washing. Now, what did God, God's Word say about ritual washing? In Exodus chapter 30, verses 19 through 21, three verses, it's all that God said concerning washing. And it was in regards to the priests. You see, God commanded that the priests should wash themselves in a particular way before they engaged in the ministry of the tabernacle and then later the temple. The purpose was ceremonial, it was purification, and it was symbolic. So this was God, these three verses, God says, this is the way you should wash, obey. The scribes come along, and how does the oral tradition build upon it? 
You see, in order to ensure that no one transgressed this law of the washing, even by accident, the scribes decided it was prudent to take God's command for the priest and mandate a principle for the people. Well, if God would want the priest to behave in such a way, then you know what? Everyone should behave this way. Why? So we don't accidentally disobey anything and get judged for it. They were taking tradition and elevating it to the same level as Scripture. But here's the problem. God had never commanded ceremonial washing be a practice for the people. It was for the priest. But the scribes had decided that it would be wise for everyone to obey it. Just to give you an example of their pettiness, 65 pages of oral tradition was set aside specifically for washing. Three verses in God's word, 65 pages on how we should obey it. Now understand, the idea of them evaluating Jesus' ministry was not wrong. As leaders, it was their obligation to come. Jesus was teaching. There was a movement happening. Them coming and listening and evaluating was not wrong. It was within their right. But the problem was instead the way they were making their evaluation. What did they find fault with? Their beef was that the disciples weren't obeying the tradition of the elders and Jesus didn't care. Instead of evaluating Jesus on the basis of God's word, they were evaluating him on the basis of man-made tradition. Their beef, Jesus didn't care about their man-made tradition, which is why here he examines or he responds to the beef. Verse 6, so he answered them, and he said, Well did Isaiah the prophet say of you hypocrites, bum, 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 as it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 29, verse 13, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of God. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to them, all too well you reject the command of God that you may keep your tradition. Now Jesus starts his response by defining who he's dealing with. He calls them hypocrites. The Greek word is hypocrites, which means one who pretends or one who acts. The term itself was a theatrical term it's kind of the idea of wearing a mask. I'm pretending to be or play a role of someone I'm not. Now understand that, that Jesus calling them hypocrites was not necessarily about what they were doing, but more in regards to who they were. It was more about the essence, not necessarily their application. Understand the distinction. These guys assumed, they made an assumption that God was pleased with their moral zeal. They, they had done something noble, right? I mean, on the surface, it's not a bad thing. God gave these commands. What was their heart? Their heart was to obey God. Why? <laughs> Judgment stinks. And so they were doing what they could to try to be obedient. 
and they were expounding and interpreting and applying. They were doing all of these things for God. They were zealous. They were moral. But they didn't realize their zeal had been misdirected. They had based their moral standing on tradition and not God's word. Jesus is saying you're hypocrites because you think you're being moral, but you're just pretending. This is what the problem is. It's as though Jesus is saying this, and check the distinction. You think you are moral, but you're only acting moral. And there is a big and significant difference between acting a certain way versus being a certain way. So Jesus calls them hypocrites, but then he explains why he considers them hypocrites. He says, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Because the religious leaders were so concerned with obeying tradition, they had placed, they had exalted, they had emphasized what a person did for God over a person's heart before God. He says, you honor me with your lips. What comes out of your mouth is honoring, but the problem is, is your heart is far from me. It's as though Jesus is saying, you think you are moral, but you're only acting moral. And what's worse is you're basing your entire moral standing on the wrong thing, on tradition and not God's word. You think you're being moral, but you're doing things that I've never asked you to do. So how does that make you moral? But then Jesus explains how they had created this false morality. He says, he condemns them. Teaching as doctrine. What? Not the commandments of God, but the commandments of man. You see, they had based their entire morality on their tradition and not God's word. And he continues, he says, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and, and then here's, here's the key, and many other such things you do. What was the result? The result of exalting tradition to the same level as God's word, and the result of emphasizing what a person does for God over who a person is before God, the result is that they were focusing on how best to obey the law through tradition when they had lost sight of the purpose behind God's law. They were so focused on what they were doing for God that they had lost sight of why God had asked them to do something to begin with. They had gotten so into the minutiae that they had lost sight of the purpose, the essence. The essence of the law was not man's obedience. The essence of the law was a heart. It was all about the heart. The further we progress away from God's word and towards man-made traditions, the further we progress away from genuine godliness and into a hypocritical form of self-righteous moralism. Their hierarchy, their moral structure had been based on tradition that emphasized a man's action when God's law was always more concerned 
With what? A man's heart. Jesus, he, he illustrates their moral hypocrisy. Verse 10, for Moses said, or the law said, honor your father and mother. And he who curses their father or mother, let him be put to death. Man, if we hadn't dismissed the youth, I'm sure a lot of parents would have liked to have heard that. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift of God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, now God's word was clear, that a person was to honor their father and mother, right? That, that's easy. It's one of the commandments. Honor your father and mother. Now, understand that Jesus is laying something out. God had always laid something out that had been to address the heart of a child to their parent. Honor. Now, when a kid's living under the roof of their parents, that honoring should manifest itself in obedience. They should obey. But when a child moves out of their house, note that honoring isn't always obeying. That's why God didn't say obey. He says honor. He's addressing the heart. Now, one of the manifestations that God had, one of the intentions that God had behind the law is that when a parent got to an older age, that it was the responsibility that the application of honoring for a child was to care for a parent in their old age. There was no social security. There was no retirement home. You know, Arnold Palmer hadn't like monopolized the whole retirement industry in Florida yet. You know, the villages hadn't been invented and there's not commercials airing 24-7 on Fox News about where you can retire. There's no retirement, which means that it was up to a child to take care of their parent. That's how they could honor their parent later in life. Now, the application of that's different today. But understand, God issues a command that addresses the heart, leaving the application of that to interpretation. But what did the scribes do? They had come behind and they had created a tradition known as korban, which meant that, yes, it was your job, it was your responsibility as a child to care for your parents in their old age. But what had the scribes done? They had said that there was this tradition where whatever of my income was dedicated to God, I couldn't use it for other things. It was for God. Which meant that the scribes and the Pharisees, they would dedicate their entire bank account to God. And so when, you know, their mom or their dad is of an old age and like, hey, son, I need you to take care of me. They're like, well, I would love to, dad. But the problem is, is I've dedicated my entire bank account to God. And so it was really out of my hands. It was a tradition. And what had they done through the tradition? They had completely missed the intention of what God's command was all about, to honor. They had lost sight of it. The tradition of Korban had superseded the law of Moses. Now Jesus will explain his lesson here to the multitude. So he, he addresses these Pharisees, these scribes, and then he turns to the multitude. And when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, Jesus is discussing the idea of defilement. And so we should define what Jesus is meaning. The word defile in the Greek 
means to make unclean. It was Levitical. It's not like that I'm dirty. It's that I'm lost. Like I'm evil. I'm not moral. I'm unclean. I'm separated from God. In context, Jesus is addressing the nature here of then what makes a person unclean. Hear me, everyone, understand. There's nothing that enters a man from the outside which makes him unclean or defiles him, but the things that come out of him, those are the things that make a man unclean. Now, please realize, what Jesus is saying here is totally revolutionary. It's radical. And he says this to the multitude. And Jesus has kind of been on a, on a, on a kick here recently of saying radical things. Instead of the disciples coming, he sends them out. It's a radical idea. Instead of waiting till after the meal to bless, to thank God, he does it before the meal. Radical. But Jesus, what he says here, it's revolutionary. It's been said, although it may not seem so now, this passage, what Jesus has just said, when it was first spoken, was well nigh the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. William Barclay. So why is this so revolutionary? The Jews had established an entire religious system based upon what? Their diet. What they ate. And, and how did it all tie together? If I eat something that's unclean, and God had listed what animals were clean, and he had listed what animals were unclean. If I eat, if I consume things that are unclean, they become part of my body, making me unclean. Which is why I should safeguard my diet to only eating the things that are clean. That the things that I put into me should be clean so that I remain pure before God. And so there was this whole kosher diet the Jews meticulously obeyed because they viewed in essence righteousness as being an active trait versus a passive trait we'll get to that in a moment but what what's Jesus saying here to his listeners what are the listeners here processing Jesus is saying that religious activities and which Judaism had been built upon, things such as keeping a kosher diet, in addition to religious traditions such as ritual washing, had no bearing whatsoever on righteousness. In context, he's talking about what makes a person unclean. They said that what you ate made a person unclean, or what came into a man made them unclean, but Jesus is saying what goes into you has no bearing. But it's what comes out. You know, all theology boils down to two fundamental ideas about the nature of man. First, if what I do makes me who I am, then changing behavior is the key to righteousness. However, if who I am dictates what I do, then a new identity, a new heart, is the key to righteousness or good behavior. Think about it this way. If defilement manifests itself from the inside out of a person, and Jesus says, the things which come out of a man are the things that defile the man. So if defilement manifests from inside out, then what? Then righteousness 
must manifest the same direction. That's what Jesus is saying here, which is why God's more concerned with the heart than the actions. See how this all ties together? Now, we reach another section because Jesus turns his attention to giving application to the disciples. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, so he speaks to the Pharisees, then the multitude, and then he goes inside this private, away from the crowd, his disciples ask him concerning the parable, which, by the way, is not a parable. They thought it was a parable, which is why Jesus says to them, are you stupid? I mean, in in the original language, are you thus without understanding also, is basically, you guys are morons. Like, really? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? Jesus is like, are you? Do you not know basic biology? You eat it, you digest it, you excrete it. This is the flow. It has nothing to do with the defilement of a person. A toilet, not a person. It doesn't go into the heart. So Jesus says, what comes out of a man defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart, proceeds evil. Thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride. Oh, you're running through that list and you're like, yeah, 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 pride. Oh. And then foolishness, you're like, all these evil things come from within and defile man. Now notice, notice a very subtle distinction between the religious leaders and Jesus. Because here's the deal. On the surface, it's very easy to miss. Let me explain. The religious leaders believe that the best way to evaluate the heart, whether a person was righteous or defiled, unclean, was by examining a person's life. Is that person living a righteous life? They concluded that the only way to then transform a defiled heart into a righteous one was by living a righteous life according to God's word and their tradition. Their morality was entirely established outside in. Jesus. He agrees with the religious leaders. Jesus says here, he's telling the disciples that the best way to evaluate the heart or whether a person is righteous or defiled, was by examining the life. Is that person living a righteous life? The evaluation's the same. However, here's the difference, here's the kicker. Jesus makes it clear that the only way to live a righteous life was by transforming a defiled heart into a righteous one. It was morality that began inside of a man and worked its way out. The evaluation is the same. The end result of both is the same. Live a righteous life. Good things being manifested from a life. God wants that. God wants you to live righteously. I hope you understand that. It's how we get there that's the key. 
the religious evaluated the life. If you were living righteously, they reached conclusions about the heart. Their application is change the way you're living because then that will change the heart outside in. Jesus says evaluation is the same way. The end result, the same thing. However, this is, this is the deal. Change the heart and then what the person does will be consistent with the nature of his heart. So if you want righteous living, you need a righteous heart. Once again, the difference is subtle, but the implication is radical. Think about it. The flaw of the religious leaders, their approach, their, the flaw was obvious. Jesus had just illustrated it. Changing the activities of a person doesn't mean, it doesn't guarantee the heart automatically changes. And who were the examples of this? The people he just called hypocrites. Why? They were outwardly moral. But what? Inwardly? They had missed the whole point. Jesus' approach, in contrast, is brilliant and it's fail-proof. A heart transformed by God will always produce a life consecrated before God. Changing the heart and allowing that change to work its way outward, well, that's the key to morality. Think about it this way. Got a question. Are moral works the cause of righteousness or the effects of righteousness? I mean, that really sums it all up in one, in one question. Because the answer to that question has radical implications for your life. Are moral works, are you doing good things, you living the right way? Are they the cause of righteousness or the effects of righteousness? The religious leaders viewed righteous living as the cause for a person's righteous standing before God outside in. You're righteous. Why? Because you're doing righteous things. Whereas Jesus viewed righteous living as the effect, not the cause, but the effect of a person's righteousness inside out. You do the right things. You live the right way. You live a godly life because the heart, because you are righteous and godly. It's a position that manifests itself into action, not actions that dictate a position. Here's a line I think, I think nails it. One view, the religious, religion, is manufactured morality, while the latter is manifested morality. The issue is, is your godly life something that you've manufactured to earn points with God? Or is it something that's manifested because you've already found God's favor? Now, as I mentioned, we're going to conclude with three quick points concerning the religious trappings of moralism. First, religious moralism, it begins with a false moralism. The whole problem here is that the scribes had exalted tradition as being just as important as God's word. 
They were doing things to earn God's favor that God had never asked of them. And they thought they were better for it. The result, they rejected Jesus. They rejected a savior. They rejected truth because they didn't think they needed it. Why? Because they had God's favor. They were being moral. They were righteous. Look at their lives. But Jesus is like, I don't care about your, I don't care about that. I'm looking at your heart and you're pretending. How do they reach a false moralism? A false sense that they were good, that they were right, that they were godly. Fascinating. We find that they came and they saw and they found fault. What did they see? What were they looking at? They were looking at the disciples, weren't they? They were comparing themselves, their behavior with the disciples. And let's be honest, they shouldn't have been called the apostles. They're really the B-apostles. I mean, they are a group of idiots. And they're looking at the disciples and they're looking at their lives and they're like, they were comparing themselves with the disciples when you know who they should have been comparing themselves with? Jesus. You see, if they had compared themselves with Jesus, if we compare ourselves, if you look around the room, you're going to feel pretty good about yourself. You're going to look around and you're like, yeah, I know I, I don't have it all together, but good grief, that guy at the end of the row, woo, he's an idiot. Like, I might not be great, but I'm pretty good. Why? Because he's not very good. So God must be pleased with me. When we reach a moral basis through comparison to other people who are immoral, it's like you, you, using a level that's broken. It's always going to be off. You see, their problem is that they, they should have been comparing themselves with Jesus, who was perfect and holy and righteous. And what would they have reached the conclusion concerning? that they had a long way to go if they thought they were moral. See, they had a false moralism. But here's the deal. Religious moralism, it also fosters spiritual superiority. Understand, the scribes and the Pharisees taking extreme moral positions, like going above and beyond, the heart behind it, I don't, I don't have a problem with. I don't think God has a problem with it. The heart of making sure that I'm moral, obeying my conscience. Okay, God's word lays out this code of behavior, but you know I'm going to take that to the next step just because I don't ever want to be found with fault. Taking a non-biblical but more extreme moral position, there's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, go for it. Good, great. You're never going to hear me condemn you that if your conscience weighs heavier about some issue. But here's the problem. Their false moralism had produced a spiritual superiority because they had taken non-biblical tradition and had created this understanding that by obeying that, though God had never asked them to, they were better than those who didn't. If God lays on your heart a specific thing, that you just should stay away from. Then obey your conscience, but don't take your conscience if it's not biblical and try to impose it on someone else. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They obeyed these ritual washings. They felt better about themselves, but God had never asked. And they look at the disciples and they thought that they were better than them. And then they say, you need to do what we're doing when God had never asked them to. 
Guys, that's why we teach God's word. That's why we get, because God's word is the blueprint. It's the mandate. If God says we shouldn't do something, then we shouldn't do something. But if God's word doesn't, then you know what? If I got to go with the traditions of men or the, or the word of God, I'm going to go with the word of God because guess who I stand before when I die? It ain't you. It's God. I fear him more than you. But the third thing is that religious moralism, I think this is a point not made. I think it turns people away from God. You know, Jesus, Jesus didn't have this false morality. He had a genuine one. He didn't have a religious spiritual superiority that he flaunted around. He didn't play the God card. People gravitated to Jesus. Why? Sinners gravitated to Jesus. Why? Because he didn't put a guilt trip. Because he loved people. Did Jesus have strong moral lines in the sand? No doubt. But Jesus allowed God's word to dictate. Jesus, he was magnetic. People came to Jesus, were willing to die for Jesus, rallied behind Jesus. But these religious leaders, with their religion and their moral trips and all of this, you know what? They hadn't appealed to anyone. And they hadn't saved anyone. And they were jealous. And they rejected the truth. They rejected Jesus. Religious moralism is a false moralism. Religious moralism fosters spiritual superiority. But when it's all said and done, it turns people away from God because it misrepresents the heart of God. And so, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and all that it says to us. In Jesus' name, amen.